Welcome to Ag Credit Set It. In each episode, our hosts sit down with experts from all parts of the agriculture industry to bring you insights and must-have information on all things from farming to finances and everything in between. Welcome back to Ag Credit Set It. I'm Libby here with Brenna. How are we today? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. It was a beautiful morning and drive over here in our Mount Gilead office. Yep. And um, today we are very lucky to have John Linder with us, who is a farmer in Morrow County and is heavily involved in the corn industry. How are you today, John? I'm doing great. It's like I said, with the sunshine, we just had some rain. Uh, a million dollar rain, right? We did. You know, <laughs> and we've had a couple of those and it looks like August is going to continue. And by the time this airs, we'll all know if, we, if it worked out yes. as well as it <laughs> appears right. at this point but boy the market sure is responding too so we'll see how that shakes out it's been a plus start for the beginning of the week here yep. um john would you tell us a little bit about you and your family um your farm and your business and maybe a pulling tractor well it's funny you mentioned a pulling tractor because that's probably how most people know my brother mike and i because the linder brothers pro stock pulling tractor I, I like to tell people we're older and dirt and dumber, too, because we're still doing it. I mean, you know, we've, we've tracked a bull for 40-some years, and that's that's probably getting close to being record. Uh, mm-hmm. But this year, not so much. We had a little failure on the dyno uh, back before Louisville, and we we could have we rebuilt it. It wasn't that bad, but it was just one of those things, you know, you're going to bang your head against the wall and repeat this and mm-hmm. we didn't want to do that we like to put something together stays together it's kind of like farming we like to the one and done although many <laughs> times we find ourselves saying if we're doing it the second time did we really start right and we don't <laughs> want that with something like pulling tractors so <laughs> we chose we're going to build a different engine and our engine builders are great i, I really appreciate them but they're not going to get it done this year they're going to do it while we're harvesting so there wasn't any pulling for us this summer. We kind of miss it, but I don't know where we find time to do it. We're busy. Yeah, so will you be ready to go for Louisville then? If they have us, because that's totally invitational. That's kind of our goal. Okay. We'll have everything ready to go, but uh, time will tell on that one. <laughs> but, you know, uh, Mike and I started farming, you know, as kids. Dad had li- livestock and crops, and I don't know whether it was the dirt or clawed fights we had or just riding the fender, you know, the thing you really oh, yeah. shouldn't have been doing. Yep. And uh, we just, Mike and I always liked being out in the field. And try as he might, Dad really never got us to take to livestock. So we didn't have a lot of <laughs> diversity. And I'll tell you what, the early 80s were pretty doggone rough. We, mm-hmm. we really thought we should have some diversity. And we never found it for a long time, but uh, we do like raising corn, soybeans, and Wheat does fit in our rotation, but not every year. Would have been a good one this year, but we didn't have any. Um, crops look pretty good, though. We've got some nice corn. Beans, I, they are so slow. Mm-hmm. We've been planting yep. in April. Wish we would have, but we didn't. Uh, the May beans are just progressing slowly. So we'll see how this turns out in the end for the beans. But uh, thankful for that. Uh, thankful to be married to my lovely wife, Cheryl. Uh, gosh, that was 1980, so what's this going to be? 43 years, you know, and... Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, she's such a delight. She's part of the operation. Uh, She does work at school. She's about ready to retire. If that gives you an idea what kind of age I am, and she (laughs) is. So I shouldn't tell on her, but I just did. Um, But it's it's been really great to have a wife that supports you, and that's 
we we recognize the importance of that. Mike's single, always been single, but he's a great brother, great uncle to my my girls and son-in-laws, and he just uh, it's been a pleasure. I never wanted to farm with anybody but him, and turns out I never wanted to tractor pull with anybody but him. <laughs> but he's single; it's his only hobby, so I've kind of ride that tail, if you will. That's how that goes. Yeah. Um, so that's that's where we're at, in Mar County. Yeah, you guys have, um, what generation did you say your farm is then? Oh, goodness. So we lost mom last year, but I always, my bio is for corn. I always put five years, or five, fifth generation, I apologize. And um, mom said, you're wrong. It's more than that. And I said, well, I don't look like we came in from the Mayflower. So <laughs> I don't, but uh, I don't know. She she pulled out the history books and the family history a bit. And yeah, it goes beyond six, so. So you guys have a not, long history not always, here. Not always in the same location, but for a lot of years. Yes, okay. been rooted here. You don't County. hear that very often about families making it that long in the industry. We talked bef- a little bit before. You, mm-hmm. you know, thing, uh, smaller farms getting swallowed up by the big ones kind of. But there, but there is an encouraging note to a uh, first-time farmer. Uh, they're not encumbered with inhibitions that we have of we've always done it that way. Mm-hmm. And I've true. watched a lot of – a lot of fellows, even my age, that were first-time farmers, and they really are probably a little more successful because they really aren't afraid to look at everything and judge it critically. So another little piece of advice for a beginning farmer, um, don't lose your objectivity and really be be critical of yourself and hold yourself to standards that maybe um, I failed to. And, well, we always did that way and always worked, right? So yeah. You don't have grandpa sitting there at the end of the field flashing his lights at you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now they play games as to who's going to turn the lights on first. <laughs> uh, it pays to turn them on early. You know, that transition is so smooth if the lights are already on. That is true. Right. Very true. Right. So can you share with us a little bit about your journey and how you became a board member for the Ohio Corn and Wheat Growers mm-hmm. and also with the National Corn uh, Growers Association? I'd be glad to. And it's, it's a case where when you volunteer, you always actually like to be asked, and I was asked. And I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, not everyone probably knows it, but in the mid-'90s, I was on the Ag Credit Board, oh. and I really, really enjoyed that. Really well-run association. The board was phenomenal. I learned more than I think I gave, but <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Um, Successful for two, three-year terms, and the, the third one I was unsuccessful. And, you know, that stung a little. I, I got I got to experience that. Well, we had that in tractor pulling, too, where you get those humbling moments. And I always told myself, well, turnover is a good thing. You know, it's there's an opportunity for someone else, some new perspectives. So that was a good thing. But uh, probably the last thing I remember that, so I kind of forget the term in years, but I remember Y2K. You know, mm-hmm. we were all worried about what our count computers crash when the calendar turned and well they didn't there was a lot of prep work so today the biggest thing i worry about on the computer is does it want to reboot right before i get on a zoom you know <laughs> right. I, I, that is <laughs> or update update exactly so yeah you know we we got past the calendar piece there but that was my experience that credit but i decided and cheryl and i talked about this as we raised our daughters you know you really want to be engaged no one's looking for someone just to warm a seat Nobody's looking for a filler. If you're going to mm-hmm. step up, you really need to engage. And so I, I thought, you know, I'll just sit back and reflect, see what opportunities come, and not worry about it. 
And so I didn't. So I was surprised one day when my neighbor, Anthony Bush, stopped by and he says, have you ever thought about being on board with high corn wheat? And I said, no, I really hadn't. Tell me about it. And it, I probably took over a year to decide <laughs> because I thought, do you really want to commit? I knew what it meant to be on the board with that credit. And it's, it's so meaningful if you actually put yourself into it. And it's a lot of reward. So I thought, well, if, do I want to give this that much effort? And so talking with Cheryl and talking with the family, I decided yeah, I would do that. And at that time, there's actually three boards, the, the small grains uh, checkoff, the corn checkoff, which is a corn marketing program board, and the association. And clearly different and distinct um, because the, the checkoffs, contributions that farmers give for their own betterment in their industry, you can't use that to lobby. You know, and so that's where the association comes in, and it's predominantly driven by membership, and that's why I'd really like to see other people take the opportunity to become members, because it it brings great value, and there's perks that actually pay for it in in the membership. So it's free. You do have to write a check, but it in in real terms, monetarily, you're compensated with with uh, sponsorships from within the industry. But I'd pay out of pocket without any compensation to be a member. It's easy for me to say because I've been part of it. Because Anthony asked me, I got to serve on the checkoff. And I did that for uh, three successful terms of three years and so nine years. And I, I chaired it uh, for a couple of years and got to be a board member again, which is really rewarding to actually uh, be in the front of the room and then get to take a, a seat at the table again and mm-hmm. just watch people, other people uh, how they uh, bring everybody together and how they use their leadership style. So it was really rewarding there. Uh, at that point, I had the opportunity uh, when I first got on the marketing board to take some leadership opportunities, and I did that. Uh, with uh, It was sponsored by Syngenta. It was leadership at its best, and it was a great program. I met growers from other states that were just new on boards, and, and they also had a advanced leadership, and I could had the good fortune of getting to take all that, and so as as uh, luck would have it, like I said, I got I was asked to actually become the chairman and sort of being vice chairman. I did take that opportunity after checking with family. I, I told the current president at the time, I said, I need to run that up the family flagpole. See if they really <laughs> want me to do one more thing. And he said, We well, got over the weekend. I want it on Monday. So talked to the family, and they said, Yeah, we'll support you in that. So that was a good two years, and I, I do like trade, uh, and biotechnology is dear to everyone's operation, so everyone would uh, understand why I would find that a fit. But we took a, a little higher lift in trade, and we started a trade school that's still going on, and so we did elevate that a bit. And um, after completing two years as chairperson there, I decided, you know, if you're ever going to run for the national board, now's the time. Because everybody knows you. You've given speeches in front of the delegate body on reports on what the committee's doing. And you're a known entity, and that's how you uh, find your way, your path forward. So mm-hmm. I did and was successful and got on the board. And after three years of that, I thought, yeah, I think I could run for leadership here. <laughs> and obviously in- encouraged and coached and mentored all the way through all this process in Ohio at National. So I was successful in becoming an officer and uh, really, really enjoyed that. But I was under COVID. 
So there was very little travel, a lot of Zoom. Kind of got proficient. My my office kind of looked like uh, a set on a play because I made sure the facade behind me looked appropriate, (laughs) but the rest of the room might be cluttered. We've done that before too. (laughs) (laughs) But webinars uh, we've had in the past. That's right. So uh, learned how to use Zoom in a in a really good way, and and I stopped for lunch one day, and I realized. I was on three different meetings in three different states, and I couldn't have done that in an airplane. Oh, yeah. So it was very effective. And so I realized this is okay. And uh, we got along good and did well under COVID. So it was really fun to be chairman as we rolled out of COVID and past president. And uh, it was uh, very rewarding to be on the National Concourse. Um, we had, a, had another position that we needed to fill, which we typically fill with a past officer. And that was... Uh, the director on the Maisel Alliance. And so that's currently where I'm at uh, with National, just an appointment with uh, the Maisel Alliance. And that international alliance is with Brazil and Argentina, and we predominantly talk about uh, non-tariff trade barriers. And we try to conduct education on why the science is right and why the science got it right and why farmers use these practices to be sustainable. So th- that is currently where I'm at. Also, though, I did move over to the association in Ohio after turning off the checkoff so I could remain connected well with uh, Ohio. So it's always it's always dear near to you, the home state, but you understand the issues better if you're you're working closely with the board. So before we dive into more about Maisal, um, I wanted to kind of ask when joining these boards and and taking on that leadership role, how much of a time commitment does that take for oh. a person to to take part in all of that? So you know that's that's really interesting um, because the joke, standing joke with most volunteer works is uh, the number of meetings a year. So it's only four meetings a year, right? And it's only, <laughs> only four, four right? <laughs> <laughs> but we all know what that leads to. And when I was on board at Credit and I was asked to, to track that, my number of days of commitment with it. And it was like 32 to 35. So I was kind of used to to being out and away from home a little bit and a little bit of travel. Um, so this wasn't much different. But once you get to be an officer at the national level, that, that is a big lift. It was different for me, but the typical officer would have been gone from home 180 days a year. Oh, Wow. And I know I, we, I just came from the Ag Hall of Fame breakfast at the mm-hmm. State Fair, and one of the um, recipients had said, you know, it's really hard to stop the tractor, you know, when it's a beautiful day outside, be planting, when you have a meeting or, you know, something going on. Mm-hmm. But when something's so close and near and dear to your heart, it's very, you know, it's, you just have to make time for it. You do. You do. But at National Corn, a high corn of wheat, uh, really tried to leave the the grower leaders alone during planting and harvest. And the reason reason we try to let those folks have their harvest time is because many don't have that much help at home. I was very fortunate. Mm-hmm. I had my brother, I had my wife, I had my kids. So I could slip away if I needed to, and I did some. But for the most part, you didn't have to. But there are ways to manage those things. I, uh, as president, uh, we were having a board meeting. It was going to be Zoom. It was in May, our May board meeting, and I've I would I've attended those while planting before on the <laughs> I was phone. Say that. Yeah. Like I'm so, pretty sure this is like the one 
or two groups out of the country probably that would understand if there was like the planter in the background and oh. buzzers going off, right? <laughs> one, of my, one of my assignments before I got to be an officer, I got to be the uh, finance chair of National Corn Growers. And so I always had to give a report. So I'm prepping the planter, filling fertilizer, <laughs> greasing, and, I, and I'm talking with my headset on, giving a finance report because I, I, I do tend to throw myself into the numbers. I, I kind of enjoy that. So it was easy. I didn't have to have notes. I could just talk talk through it. And uh, I thought, wow, I just pulled that off. And, and I didn't make any mistakes that I knew of. And so I, I talked to our treasurer after that, and I said, did I misquote anything? She said, no, you actually got it all right. And I said, were you able to hear me? Yeah, that headset's pretty good. So, But I tried to stay away from the gas engines running in the diesel tractor, you know, just so we didn't have that, that noise. So, But I... Further that, uh, another meeting in May, I was president conducting the meeting, and it was on Zoom, and I was planting corn, and I set another iPad. We have iPads in our tractors, right? Most people do. But I set up another, and I videoed in. I knew I was planting a farm where I had good cell signal, so I called in to keep the bandwidth good on the on the iPad so the video carried good. And we met with uh, then Ag Chair and Scott mm. from the House Ag Committee. Yeah. And he was just thrilled that I was out there planning. So he could see everything I'm doing, and he can see the planner in the back and when I'm turning. And, and uh, I, told, I told Chairman Scott, I said, you know, not everybody's old enough on this committee, but you and I are, are on this meeting. You and I are old enough to, to know what I mean. And I said, I never felt more like Eddie Albert than today. And, you know, some of the young guys are thinking, Eddie Albert, yeah. <laughs> You have to look it up. I'm just going to bait you with that one. Yeah, I'm not even going to close that one. But uh, but I also, he laughed, and I said, but, you know, I, I got things started warmed up, and I had a hydraulic leak. But wouldn't you know, Mr. Haney stopped by, and he had no ring on his truck. And so as Green Acres, the television show, Mr. Haney was the guy that went by and sold everything, and Eddie Albert was a farmer that moved from New York and always wore a suit because I had a jacket and tie on. Believe me. My hard hands, my family were taking pictures oh, and laughing, yeah. and I still, but but Chairman Scott got a photo of he and I on Zoom, and I was in tractor planting, and he really, really appreciated that. But you were in a suit and tie. The I time, was. Right? Well, I had jeans and work <laughs> shoes on, but, yeah. but, I, and, uh, but I did have a jacket and tie. I thought, I've got to remember Conkers. I've got to dress up, you yeah. know, and so I pulled it off, got it done, and that was the meeting where we asked him, because there was consideration for stepped-up basis, mm. and we asked him what that meant to him, and it was very near to him too, because he's about small farmers and diversity, as you can imagine. And he says, "What can I do?" And we asked him to send a letter to the president saying why we can't have stepped-up basis for the family farm, and he did. And it was all a Zoom meeting while I'm planting, so it was. You can be very effective, be a farmer, and be engaged. And with today's technology, it can happen anywhere. So it's not it's not as difficult. It seems ominous, but it's not as difficult to be effective as a farmer. And so, yeah, I'd love for anyone listening to this and thought they might get involved. I'd encourage you to. We I'd can even tell met, everybody I'd, we're sitting near a tractor right now, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But. No, that's good to know. That's something to keep in mind every time we have a, a, a meeting. 
our surroundings. That's right. <laughs> and what effect it might have on on the outcome of everything. So that's right. I'm thinking of you know people getting involved. This I don't think a lot of um, maybe young farmers or even farmers in Ohio would know what the Maisal you know board is and how it how it impacts them here in Ohio. Um, and you know, even in the U.S., you know, what are some um, what are some things that you guys are working on with Maisal? Well, sure. Let me give you a little background on Maisal. Uh, it is an alliance. It is incorporated and uh, has bylaws. And it was begun, I think, May of I think twenty thirteen. So I think it's about ten years old. And the alliance began with uh, the U.S. Brazil and Argentina, and it's a national corn grower association and U.S. Grains Council in the U.S. So there are four directors from the U.S., two come from the Grains Council and two come from national corn growers. Then in, in Brazil and Argentina, they come from their corn associations, which the one is Mazar and the other is Abramillo. So there are 12 seated directors at all time, and then we have a uh, consultant advisor um, that works for us under hire and uh, really a tremendous asset. What it was really set out to do was change the narrative on uh, GMO technology okay. and not let it be a trade barrier. Because if uh, someone wants to import our corn and, and they don't follow the science and know that all GMO is, is really safe and it's been proven to be safe, they say, well, we don't want GMO, we want non-GMO. Well, that raises the cost of the goods that they're trying to purchase. So mm -hmm. it becomes a barrier for trade. And so that's what it was really, um, that was a premise for it. Now, it's expanded a, a bit. Uh, I can assure you the mission creep will kill any good organization. We're very true to our mission. And the beginning mission was actually farmers' tools that are innovative and not be not to let them be a, a trade barrier. We don't sell corn. Or that is not what we do. And we don't promote one country over another. What we do is tell the story that we actually represent 50% of the corn farmers in the world with these three countries. And 70-plus percent of the world's exportable corn is represented by Maisal and the U.S., Brazil, and Argentina. 70%-plus the world's exportable corn represent those three countries. So it's it's a really a how do I say a real benefit to any trade that we try to perform in this country, any trade agreement, any sales that we try to do through US Grains Council and promoting the the US corn because we can support the technology that farmers embrace and use. And we all really like to tell the story. And 95% plus of the corn raised in Brazil, 95% plus of the corn raised in Argentina, 95 plus percent of the corn raised in the U.S. all use the same types of technology. Now, we may use different events because they're in our topic. They're going to be fighting insects more than we are. Mm -hmm. But we, and different ones. But... It's still biotechnology. It is still the new breeding innovation, the gene editing products that are coming online. Um, those are the things that we really try to get in the conversation in foreign countries and set the record straight and tell why we do it. Why do farmers do this? It, it is economics, but it's a social benefit of being able to sustainably produce 
an abundant supply, so the world is never short. And it's also sustainable to our environment. Without these tools, we have to do more tillage. We really aren't as environmentally friendly as uh, we want to be. So we really need to maintain these tools and have folks understand why it's safe for us to do this and why it's particularly advantageous for us to use less chemicals, less herbicide technology, less insecticides with the use of the plant, having the ability to ward off this natural pest, if you will. I think it's really neat that, you know, normally with the U.S., we know, you know, Brazil is, you know, our biggest competitor. And so normally don't want to do things with your competitor, but it's nice to know that there, that we are working together with them to work with other countries to be able to export our grain and sell our grain to other countries. Um, so you are, you are president, correct, of the Pre- board? Yes. Well, congratulations. Yes. Thank you. That's Thank very you. neat. As and- of July 1st for a year. Okay, so just just became president right. then. Um, so I guess what is the what is the biggest top the number one topic that you guys or issue that you guys are going to be working on for this next year? Is there any one thing, or is there a couple of things um, within the industry that in the countries that you guys are all working on, other than um, just promoting um, your mission? Mm-hmm. Well, you can you can imagine. Like I said, we don't sell corn. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't pit one another against that and we don't go out and, and uh, that's not our goal. What we do is to try to help folks understand the science behind the safety of the products and why it's abundant and why it's sustainable. So I think everyone would understand if I said Mexico. We went there in August about a year ago, went to Mexico City. And U.S. Grains Council is a partner with National Corn Growers. It's it's the high corn checkoff help funded it is phenomenal there's like a 25 to 1 return on every dollar that's invested with grains council and it's its value that it produces so it's a wonderful attribute for us maisel is is a real benefit to grains council's work because they were in in mexico trying to help folks understand why u.s corn is safe in the form it's in why we don't need to be worried about banning you know the the technology and wanting a non-GMO product, and they couldn't get into meetings that they really should get into because it's a political decision that's being made. There's mm-hmm. no science behind it. Even our government, uh, our Ag Secretary Vilsack, uh, USTR has asked, "Okay, give us what science you're using for the basis of this decision," and they've never come up with a good answer. So we know it's all political. So we thought as grain. As it is a trade issue, maybe we should leave that to Grains Council. But quickly we realized that Maisal, we could make a difference. So the three farmers, it's farmer-led. So you understand that it's farmers from Argentina, Brazil, and the U.S. requested meetings with folks in Mexico. And we got into meetings that no one else could get into. Hmm. And I forget the number of meetings we had, but they were really a pleasure to take. And thankfully at the time, the president at that time, because it rotates every year between the three countries, was from Argentina, speaks Spanish, uh-huh. has that kind of Latin flair to his delivery and a uh, <laughs> little boisterous, and you, you like listening to him. Federico's a great guy, and he did a really great job. But those folks could hear it in their language firsthand. Mm-hmm. And we did have interpreters for those that didn't. 
But meeting after meeting, he shared with them, why, if you want 17 million metric tons of corn, it needs to be the corn you're buying because you cannot get the corn you're thinking you want, the non-GMO, from Argentina. You can't get it from Brazil, and you can't get it from the U.S. And here in Argentina, say you might as well continue to buy from the U.S. I never thought I'd see that happen. Yeah. And I was there. And he did that repeatedly in Mexico. When we told them that what they're after, they couldn't obtain. And most of the corn that they buy, certainly tortillas, is, it's a big conversation, right? They like mm-hmm. white corn for that. Mm-hmm. They'd like to be sustainable in that and be non-GMO. But they can't get across the mountains into the Yucatan Peninsula mm-hmm. where they grow the corn to where they need corn, the white corn. So they... It's easy, much easier and more cost-effective for them to buy white corn from the U.S., and that's what they've been doing. So that's still an ongoing conversation. Why is the GMO white corn from the U.S. really still safe and a good good option? But the, most of the 17 million metric ton that they buy, incidentally, to put that into terms, I don't think we raised 17 million metric tons in, in Ohio. If, I, if my math is right, I think it's like, 617 million bushels, and I think that falls short of 17 million metric ton. Yeah, just so if you lose, <laughs> so if you lose the Mexican market, why is the, why is the work that Mays Hall is doing important? If you lose the Mexican market, you've got all of Ohio's production to find a home for. Now you're sitting there thinking, oh, but my corn goes to the livestock or it goes to ethanol. What do I care? Because somewhere else they will be able to fill that because they don't have they shipped to mexico now they got to ship somewhere else they can put a train and send it to ohio your basis goes down mm-hmm. so it does affect us because it's corn in all forms but it's all of our corn it's the aggregate aggregate of how we market our corn you know like i said the three countries represent 70 percent of the world's exportable corn we're a big part of that take 17 million metric tons out of the picture, you got a problem. So Maisal leaned in, got meetings that no one else could take, shared with them that they really need the corn that they're buying, and they switched their policy a bit. Now it's okay to buy that corn to make meat protein. Now we're still talking about tortillas, (laughs) but Maisal can take a step back. Now we've got Asco back. Federico actually presented to farmers and some grain buyers and users in Mexico post our meeting in August. But we took a step back because now Grains Council and our U.S. government could follow up on our meeting because the doors are open now. Mm-hmm. Grains Council couldn't get their folks in there. They have an office in Mexico City, and they couldn't get their folks into those meetings until we took those meetings. But it took farmers from three countries to get there. Anthony Bush and I couldn't have asked for a meeting and got it. But us mm-hmm. with... Argentines and Brazilians, we got the meetings. It's amazing the education that it all, how it all comes back to get to that piece of knowledge is power, really. Right. Mm -hmm. And knowing where, what fits where, or what fits where, when it needs it, and all that kind of stuff. And like you're saying, like, if they're not going here, then, you know, this supply... Simple supply and demand when it comes down to it. Right. When you're not filling it here, it's going over here. Well, then it's going to, the ripple effect down to 
the local farmer essentially exactly as to where and how they can sell and and it it just it's amazing to me how it all comes full circle when you think about you know one group trying to put the message out there to keep something going for how many millions of farmers out there Absolutely. and i say th- i think the grassroots effect i mean i think it comes down to the grassroots yeah. of actually farmers going in and having that conversation and the, that's educating and others that's, you about know, what we're I mean, doing. just that's how they got, you know, you can get, your, obviously it was the organization, but getting your foot in the door of actually talking with farmers rather, rather than government or, you know, a, a political group. I mean, it's, it comes down to grassroots and farmers just being passionate about what they're growing and knowing right. that what they're doing is, is, um, is safe. And, you know, we, this is, you, you know, you just, you want to be able to help feed the world. Exactly. Those farmers in Mexico realize they have issues that would be really um, better economically met using the technology that we are using, but they're really very limited in what they can use. So that was the post-meeting. That's why farmers wanted to meet and get a little more background. But we met with government officials. Those are the ones that no one could get, get into, but the three countries together could. And we went to the WTO in the first part of April this year and had a series, I think probably either 13 or 16 meetings, and they actually set up a meeting room for us at the World uh, Trade Organization's headquarters, and we met with several countries, same kind of conversation, why the technology is important and why we have to have policies that support that and use the science to make those policy decisions because not everyone wants to. And... uh, They've, they've since invited us back. They want us to attend a public forum, but you have to submit your proposal and get accepted. And, and that doesn't happen every time the first mm-hmm. time, so we're going to keep trying. <laughs> it's a process, it right? Is. Later this month, join us at Farm Science Review. We'll be at booth 535, located at the intersection of Land and Tractor Street. Stop by for some giveaways, a water break, and a chance to win a Yeti cooler. The show runs September 19th through the 21st at the Molly Karen Ag Center in London, Ohio. Visit fsr.osu.edu for show hours and to buy tickets. We'll see you there. So, obviously, we've talked about how, you know, such a a group as Maisel comes together, how it ends up ultimately affecting us here at home. So what are the issues here at home that farmers should be paying attention to? You know, I, economics is, is a really big thing. And I can tell you from the perspective or share with you from the perspective that I, corner we, what we look at as a board, what the issues are that farmers are facing, um, it's market access. And that brings stability to the farm gate. But also the feels like post-COVID, actually during COVID, our supply chain broke, right? Mm-hmm. We really are still struggling to not have to warehouse a lot of parts ourselves to be able to get through our seasonality of our type of labor. Um, labor is a big issue, right? Yes. But we we try to face the things that uh, create stability. And like I said, we, we uh, engage in those fertilizer conversations. We, we have a bit of a policy mis- mismatch, and we're, we're paying for it domestically where we're seeing nuances of supply chain disruptions and movements. So 
pricing gets kind of absorbent because that's how supply and demand is always met. Someone always will pay up to get what supply there is and yeah. someone else may not. And uh, But you can have regional differences where folks just don't have access to it because they're, one, they're maybe dealing more local and not a big supply chain, or two, the big supply chain can't meet the needs of all their branches. And we don't like that in fertilizer. So we've been really engaged in those conversations. And it looks like we're kind of ramping up that way again this fall. So, you know, those inputs, the uh, fertilizers, the fertilizers are uh, showing up as uh, being a little bit of an issue again and prices uh, ramping up. So how we meet the needs for our crops for next year, answer if we've got a good crop, how do we replenish? You know, that that's one issue. Um, we're facing one with... Uh, our market access uh, through what I think Ohio does really well is uh, value add. And ethanol is a great story on how we value added and it's co-product of a distiller's grain. That's a wonderful feed uh, protein. Face it. You know, we, we see those uh, comments on the internet where we should probably not grind corn and ethanol because we need it for food. Well, let me let me set that record a little <laughs> bit straight from my perspective. I usually don't take that argument on, and I, I kind of chuckle because you know it might have been a day I wondered that you know, but I got involved and I understand a little better. Our corn isn't isn't what we need for food because field corn's never going to be on my plate at home. Mm-hmm. Sweet corn will, but it shows up in all those wonderful meat products, and it also shows up as. Um, fuel that we can use to offset the carcinogenic ingredients in the gas tank and be better for the environment. And it also reduces the price of, of our fueling because of its it's a practical advantage uh, product that uh, delivers at a lower cost than the gasoline that's blended with typically. And so that's a market access that if anybody's a real marketer and likes to follow basis, since the Renewable fuel standard, 2005, if you track the basis, we pretty much went from occasionally a positive basis, mostly a negative basis, to we are typically around a positive corn basis since the RFS was instated and we started producing ethanol to some really, really handsome positive basis. Mm -hmm. Now, with that comes someone else wants part of our cost of production, right? So... We have to share in that that advantage, but you wouldn't have had that without ethanol, and you, our margins would be thinner. And it's not that it's under attack. It's just not being understood that it's the opportunity today to make a difference on on everybody's topic at, at Washington of climate. You know, how do we responsibly be better for the environment? Renewable fuels is here now, and it's already working in that regard, and it is it, it is advantageous to the environment, but it's a big part of our market. We talked about losing Ohio's or having to figure out what to do with an amount greater than Ohio's corn. Picture what we would do if we didn't have ethanol. We would have a totally different dynamic on our on our uh, economics of raising corn, and it would put a lot of pressure on other other commodities that we raise. And so the tide to lift all ships would also sink ships yeah. if we didn't have ethanol. So we, It's that ripple effect. It is. It's <laughs> what you were talking about, how this all ties together. It's pretty pretty amazing when you get to thinking about it. So part of the grassroots effort 
pay attention uh, to any opportunity to uh, sign up for calls to action so you can tell the members of Congress what's really important to the farm because ethanol is really, even if you don't deliver to it, it's really important to our farm gate. But I really like to share with consumers and legislators. On our farm in Ohio, every kernel of corn that we raise, every bushel that leaves a farm ends up being livestock feed, and they say, <clears throat> excuse me, but you sell to an ethanol plant. Exactly, we do. <laughs> but the DDGs come back. But we sell we sell to, to livestock folks too, don't get me wrong. But it's a wonderful co-product that 100% of the protein that goes into the ethanol plant comes back okay. in a distiller's grain. The world is short of protein, and we lose none of it producing ethanol. So we have all that feed value retained and enhanced. It's not going straight to the mouth of the of the livestock, but it is getting there eventually. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. taking a different path. That's right. Through ethanol. Uh, yeah. So what do you see coming for the future for American agriculture, knowing the roles that you're in with all the the different places or, or different groups that you've been a part of, what do you see coming? Okay, we, you know, really we focus a lot when we do board work and planning and, and the National Corn Growers is going through a, a new strategic plan right now. I, I really wondered when I first got on the board, what's the value of, of that process? But you get that chance to be visionary and think about what's coming. And there's been some conversation about what does a farmer of the future look like? And I'd really like to think the family farmers survives and all this, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that that happens. And that's one of the th wonderful things and the great story we talk about at Maisel when we hold meetings with folks, policy decision makers in other countries. It is scale neutral. Our technology is 100% scale neutral. I can get the same technology in one bag of corn that I can get in a pallet of corn that I can get in a truckload of corn. I can put it in a two-row planter. I can put it on a 48-row planter. It really doesn't matter. I've got the technology to produce sustainably, economically, environmentally, and socially responsible. And that really, really resonates. And so I, th I think that is one of the things you really had to, to pay attention to. So when we're talking about the high cost of inputs, we can be more efficient with technology. And we do the, that with site-specific technology, right? And lucky on our operation, my daughter Katie's here and. She likes that stuff, so I don't have to worry about it. When I've got a problem, she makes Katie, it work. <laughs> Katie has a problem. I don't have a problem. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, so, how do you suggest that we keep it sustainable? You know, I think really focusing as how corn and wheat does, and National Corn Growers does, and the work that the U.S. Grains Council does, and Maze Hall, it's 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 a great collaborative effort to make sure that size really isn't the only economic advantage. And uh, we see it in our suppliers. The co-ops have got bigger. We've seen farms get bigger. You know, sometimes there's just no opportunity for a farm to go on and it sells. And so it's really, really important for farmers to have a great relationship with a great lender like Head Credit because that is one of the first things I learned. If I was going to be successful, I had to have a great relationship with my lender because I'm going to be faced at ending up against someone that has deeper pockets. And if I can make a pencil and make it work, 
you're probably going to need some funds to do it <laughs> that they may not need as much of. So that relationship was critical, and Edgar has been a big part of our success here at Linder Farms in Mark County. But association work is, is really critical, and having that membership is really an important part of, of what uh, you can do for yourself because you'll be smarter because you did. Well, we appreciate that piece of advice for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then, obviously, what other pieces of advice do you have for a young, beginning small farmer? Like one, one to like not be discouraged by anything or, or whatnot. But what's one piece of advice you'd give them? Don't don't be afraid to look for that mentor. That that's always a really good tool. That's one of the reasons I was successful moving through leadership with corn uh, association work because I had mentors, people that saw something in me and helped me cultivate it. And they're really not making you something you're not. They're helping you cultivate it. So when you think about your farming, having your farming hat on, and you meet those those needs that you have, and you think, I really don't have the expertise, I would give you the piece of advice. If you don't, hire it until you do. Because you can't wait until you get good at it. Too much time lasts. So don't be afraid to hire a good accountant, have that great lender, um, that agronomy uh, specialist that you need. Uh, the people that sell it to you are, are good agronomists, but but they've got they've got a bias, and so sometimes independent uh, wouldn't have to be full time, but uh, independent agronomists are a real asset, and they have an association, and they have your best interest. Um, it's things like that that really really. As a beginning farmer, like I said, if you feel like you're short on something, go find it. Don't don't anticipate that you're going to have to learn it. Take three or four years to learn it to be able to use it. Fill that gap with with knowledge, and then when you do have that skill, you'll be you'll be glad that you didn't wait to be able to implement it. Time so, is definitely money on that. Yeah, it and, is. and finding and finding somebody. That is an expert in that and growing with them, it's just, that's just, that's going to make you so much better. And you're not going to believe the knowledge that you have, you know, or that you ever could have had in growing as a person with that knowledge and becoming a better producer and manager. I just, I can't echo that enough. That is great advice. That's what I was thinking, like building the team around you. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I've had folks say you need, need your own board, find those people that you can utilize that way well i never really did that just built some friends you know (laughs) they seem to become friends right they do they do and and sometimes they have to be far enough away from your operation you know when i first started was probably 40 miles away you could be an expert (laughs) but really 40 miles away you could find someone that was independent enough from you that they would be candid and then i soon realized they don't have to be that far away you just had to build trust and Mm -hmm. uh, build relationships you know, if you ever have to have uh, that moment like Cheryl and I have had as husband and wife when you have to have a tough conversation about something that you didn't want to have a tough conversation, it wouldn't end well if you didn't have a relationship. Absolutely. But nor will anything you do in business. So always work at having relationships all the way through because if you ever have to call someone out and say, you know, I think you're wrong and this really does disparage me, you want them to listen to you. And so you have to have that relationship. So I think those are critical. Those are those are uh, successful moments in in uh, building your own leadership style. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Like I said, it's it's uh, 
I, I still think there's great opportunity in agriculture. I don't think the small farmers are going to have, uh, you know, it's not going to be easy, but I don't think that uh, size and scale is everything. But what you want it to be, uh, you'll have to define that, and that might dictate dictate the size that you need to be to have it be produce kind of economic you want it to be. Great advice. Great, great advice. And actually, it's a perfect way to end the the podcast with that piece of advice. So we want to thank you, uh, John, for joining us today and giving us your perspective on the industry on the international level, local level, personal level, all of that in between, too. So uh, we want you as uh, listeners to remember to subscribe to Ag Credit Set It on all podcast streaming apps. Links to the National Corn Growers Association and Maisal will be on our show notes on our website, agcredit.net. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Ag Credit Set It. Thank you for listening to Ag Credit Set It. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you are there, leave us a review to help others find the show. Let's talk ag in between episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AgCredit. For more tips and resources, visit agcredit.net.